This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morana. Well, a lot of you might be up listening today, and you're not typically up at this hour because you may have the day off today. You may have the day off because it's President's Day. You may have the day off because it's George Washington's birthday observed. Now, imagine my surprise. I look through the registry of federal holidays. I don't see a President's Day. Where did this President's Day tradition come from? Why do some places celebrate it? Why do some places not? Where do you put the apostrophe anyway? Are we celebrating all presidents or is it just Washington and Lincoln? And was Washington all that great to begin with? Someone who may have uh, the answer to some of those questions is Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, a presidential historian and the author of the award-winning book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institute. There are a few people that know more about George Washington than she does. Dr. Shavinsky, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Happy President's Day, or should I say George Washington's birthday observed? Well, happy Washington's birthday observed to you. Thank you for having me. So what is the story? What is today? Yeah, so it's actually, you know, it's such a, a truly American mm-hmm. story because Americans started celebrating Washington's birthday before the Constitution even existed. Uh, Americans were used to celebrating the king's birthday in the, the 18th century. And after they declared independence, obviously, that would have been considered a little bit inappropriate. And so they basically, soldiers in the Continental Army, swapped out celebrations for the king's birthday for Washington's birthday. And that continued up through the time he was president. And then after he left office, much, I should say, to the chagrin of his successor, John Adams, who felt that it wasn't really appropriate to celebrate the birthday of an average citizen, which Washington was once he left office. Hmm. So it really started from the very beginning and then continued really at sort of a local or state level. There was no national celebration that really depended on the community. And that was the case until the 1880s. And at that point, a lot of at least northern states had also started celebrating Lincoln's birthday. Some southern states celebrated Jefferson's birthday. And so in the 1880s, the country actually passed a bill recognizing Washington's birthday as an official holiday. And then in 1970, when the government was trying to sort of create a more uniform schedule to have holidays beyond Mondays so that people could travel and have long weekends, they decided to make the official observance of President's Day, basically meaning Washington and Lincoln's birthdays, 
the third Monday in February because it would be kind of in between the two. And it sort of just got smushed into this President's Day concept, even though most people aren't really all that interested in celebrating like a Franklin Pierce or a James Buchanan. Well, so that that's my question. With that 1970 observation of President's Day, we're celebrating all the presidents from uh, John Tyler to William Henry Harrison and everybody else, all uh, 45 people that have been president? Well, technically, actually, the holiday is still Washington's birthday. So technically, we're only really celebrating Washington and Lincoln because that was the impetus behind the holiday. And Nixon apparently at one point had toyed around with an executive order to make it President's Day with the apostrophe after the S to include all of them. But there was kind of an uproar about that, recognizing that not everyone (laughs) is Washington and Lincoln. So, you know, we kind of call it President's Day. But actually, I think the best thing we can do is see it as a moment to reflect on the great moments of the presidency and maybe also remember that there are some not so great moments, too. Got it. Well, that's why I love interviewing great presidential historians like you, because we're going to ask you about some of those great moments and not so great moments. So even though the there's no official President's Day holiday, do we have an idea of how many states actually celebrate President's Day in addition to the holiday of either Washington's birthday or Washington and Lincoln's birthday? So it is, of course, a a federal holiday. So any of the employees at the state level who recognize federal holidays generally get that day off as well. But then each state can kind of do their own thing. So Mm -hmm. most states generally keep it as Washington and Lincoln. There are still some stubborn ones who want to do Washington and Jefferson. And there are some, some odd ones around the South as well. At one point, there was a Jackson holiday that's kind of gone out of fashion. But it really does depend on the state. And I highly encourage everyone to look at their state laws because it, it is really funny to see which presidents they choose to celebrate. <laughs> it is indeed. We're talking with Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky. Uh, she is a terrific presidential historian. She's got a new book coming out in September. But uh, her previous book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, has won multiple awards and uh, has gotten just great reviews all over the place. Uh, Lindsay, l- let's talk about George Washington. Was he really that great? Well, he was, of course, human. And he was fallible and he made mistakes and he did a lot of things that we would be very uncomfortable with. However, I think it's also accurate to say that there was absolutely no one else who could have been the first president because he was the only person that had the national stature at the time, had the respect from most Americans and had demonstrated that he could be trusted with enormous power and not abuse that trust. And so he was the only person that could really bring together the nation at a moment when most states distrusted each other. Citizens had very few emotional bonds between themselves and the national government. And he really acquitted himself so admirably for those eight years, really demonstrating remarkable restraint and establishing countless precedents. You know, restraint is a lot less sexy than like winning the Civil War Mm. or winning World War II. So it's harder for us to measure But it's so important, especially when someone is in a position for the first time. And then, of course, he walked away and he didn't have to. And that was a unbelievably revolutionary thing to do in the 18th century. So I do think that he was a pretty extraordinary person in American history. 
your work focuses on the cabinet, which I don't know. Uh, a lot of people just always assume the cabinet was there, that it was conceived of by the uh, founding fathers. It's not entirely correct. At the time Washington became president, there was no mention of the cabinet. He essentially invented this, right? I mean, where did George Washington get the idea for a cabinet from? What was he hoping to accomplish? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the word cabinet is not in the Constitution, and that was very much by design. The uh, delegates at the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected proposals for a cabinet because they felt like it would be creating a system too much like the British government, which they have, of course, had just fought a war to rebel against. Mm. So they were trying to not replicate that process again. And um, so there were a number of other options that were put in place for advisors for the president. And Washington did try to use those when he initially went into the presidency, because, of course, he had been at the Constitutional Convention and had a very clear sense of their expectations. However, the options that were laid out to him, they just proved to be either inefficient or not up to the task or unwieldy, or he needed multiple people's input at one time. And so what he ended up doing was basically copying and pasting the practices that he had used in his councils of war during the revolution as commander in chief of the Continental Army directly into the executive branch. And he brought together the department secretaries to discuss, to debate, to build consensus, to get advice. And he had really intentionally surrounded himself with smart, experienced, knowledgeable men who knew things that he didn't. And he sought out their guidance in moments of, you know, really constitutional questions or unprecedented challenges. As far as vetoes go, I think most modern Americans just view vetoes as something a president does when they don't agree with a law that Congress passed. That's not how George Washington viewed the practice of a veto, though, is it? That's right. So he was very sparing in his use of veto. He was actually quite deferential to constitutional authority or excuse me, to congressional authority because he believes in the power sharing arrangement that the Constitution had laid out. And so he only vetoed things when he felt like they had not fully comprehended what the Constitution intended or it didn't necessarily make sense. He wasn't trying to reject the course of action, but to help them refine the language or to come up with a more sensible plan. So, for example, his first veto was right after Congress had taken the first census and they were trying to apportion representation for the states and to figure out how to do that. And that wasn't really described in detail in the Constitution. And so they had come up with a few different mathematical equations. And he felt like the one that they chose was not particularly clear and not particularly fair. And so he vetoed it and he suggested an alternative. And they adopted that alternative and then passed the bill and he signed it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The you alluded to George Washington's decision not to run again. Obviously, there were no term limits in those days. He could have easily run for a third term and gotten elected probably unanimously again. 
Uh, two part question. One, why did Washington choose not to run for a third term? And was this really that rare at the time? I think it was King George III that said if he really stepped away from power, he would be the greatest man who'd ever lived. How unusual was this for a, a popular leader of a republic or any sort of a country to voluntarily relinquish power? Yeah, great questions and so important, I think, on President's Day, especially for us to think about. So Washington stepped away for a couple of reasons. First, he was tired. He had been in public service for decades. He was a little grouchy about some of the criticism he was starting to receive. He wanted to be home at Mount Vernon, and he was done with it. And so there was no doubt that there were definitely personal reasons behind that decision. But he also understood that he needed to encourage the Amer- his fellow Americans to see the presidency, to begin the process of electing another president, to have the first transition of power. They needed to have all that take place, what, both in a planned way. So when he was alive and it was you know, a scheduled election as opposed to him dying suddenly, but also if they could have that happen while he was alive, then he would be able to grant a lot of his legitimacy to that process. And his enormous prestige would give a lot of calm and would help Americans feel comfortable with that process. And so he wanted it to happen while he was alive and while he was present and while he could participate. And that was a huge, huge choice and a huge decision. And I think the reason it was so huge is because it really was a radical act. At this point, when we're thinking about what's happening in American history, Napoleon comes onto the scene just a few years later in France. This is the time of military dictatorships and kings and queens that serve for the duration of their lives. The most recent transition that Americans were familiar with was the French Revolution, which was, of course, characterized by guillotines and blood running through Mm -hmm. the streets. And so people just didn't, this just wasn't how it was done. Because I think, you know, there, there is a certain human quality that if you are a person in power, you tend to think that you're the only one in power that can do it. And Washington surely could have been tempted to feel that way, but he really pushed back on that impetus. And that was very rare in the 18th century. In George Washington's farewell address, he issues a couple of warnings to the country, a couple of pieces of advice. One was to stay out of the affairs of Europe. That piece of advice, America largely heeded for about a century. But the other piece of advice was almost immediately ignored, which was to not form political parties so that the United States would not boil down to the factionalism, which he had seen other countries getting bogged down with and which we're kind of experiencing today, where everything, including what day of the week it is, seems to be defined by whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Given the fact that Washington was so popular and he did have this larger than life persona, why didn't Americans and other American policymakers heed his warnings about avoiding political parties? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there are a couple of important nuances to his advice. His his big concern was that Americans would forget how much they had in common with each other. And they would look at their political differences or their affiliations or their affection for foreign nations and allow those identities or those emotional ties to take precedence. And so I think what happened after he issued his farewell address and then, you know, as he went into retirement and he died, there was a real sense that 
the Republic was very fragile. We, of course, we know that it survived. We know that it's still here 200 years later. We know that, you know, the experiment worked, but they didn't know that. They didn't know what was going to come next. And there was a real sense that any misstep would be the last one, would be fatal. Because, of course, the Constitution and this federal government was their second chance. They had already had the Articles of Confederation and they had failed. And most nations don't get second chances. And so they were just so anxious that one misstep would completely tear everything apart. And so when they looked at their political opponents, they started to see them as mortal enemies. They saw them as fatal to the future of the nation. And so rather than it just being a disagreement over policy or debating what was the right you know, taxation policy or what was the right foreign policy, it became this person is a threat to the future mm. of the nation. And it allowed them to override those similarities that they have may have shared with those differences. In September, you've got a new book coming out about John Adams. It's called Making the Presidency, John Adams and the Precedents that Forged the Republic. I'm looking forward to reading it uh, in September and then hopefully having you come back to talk about it. But um, let me ask you a little bit about the Adams-Washington relationship. On a personal level, what was their relationship like? Were they friends? Were they friendly? And on a professional and a political level, I know that George Washington answered the call from President Adams to come back into service when it looked like there was a possibility of war and to take charge of the military again. That's a chapter of Washington's life and of Adams' presidency that very rarely gets mentioned. I'm wondering if you could speak to both of those. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much. I'd love to come back to talk about it. And, um, you know, their relationship is a really interesting one because I think that you can't pick two white dudes from the 1790s that would have been more different in both <laughs> their personality and their background and how they comported themselves. They, I think, both had a great deal of respect for one another. They recognized and appreciated their sacrifices and their commitment to the nation, but they were never particularly close. So they had worked together in the Continental Congress. John Adams was actually instrumental in getting Washington appointed as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. But he had then been a little bit critical of Washington's leadership at various points during the war, and Washington had never really forgotten or forgiven that criticism. Um, And then John Adams later in his career felt like his diplomatic service wasn't really appreciated in the same way that the military service was. And so he was sometimes a little bit resentful about that. Professionally, when John Adams was elected as the first vice president and Washington was elected as the first president, Initially, I think John Adams really expected to play a role, and Washington did ask him for some advice in the first couple of weeks. But then that relationship pretty quickly cooled because John Adams had taken a relatively unpopular position on what the president should be called. He preferred a more um, sort of outlandish title akin to what might be found in the courts in Europe because that was what he was used to. And he was worried that foreign dignitaries would come to the United States and think that it was sort of like this little bumpkin nation with, you know, governments and people that weren't worthy of respect. And Washington really preferred a much more simple title. And I think that he sort of lost trust in some of John Adams' political judgment. And so he never invited John Adams to a cabinet meeting. He didn't really ask for his advice. Mm -hmm. They did socialize professionally, but they were not close. And in fact, in 1796, right as Washington was sort of deciding he was going to retire, 
he did have an in-depth conversation with Adams and Adams wrote in a letter back to his wife that it was the first time they had talked in depth in decades, which is a pretty remarkable statement. Um, In terms of the chapter that comes later, you're right. It's not really discussed. And I actually think it's one of the low points of Washington's professional service and his commitment to the nation because he had been so intentional about being deferential to civilian control over the military as both uh, the commander in chief of the Continental Army and then when he was president himself. And he almost threatened to really undo that by not respecting Adam's authority over the military when he came back. Hmm. So that chapter is something that I'm definitely hoping to bring to light a little bit more because I think it's really important. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that Adams book. Would you say that uh, Adams as a president, not as a founding father or as, you know, a, a key player in the American Republic, but as a president, do you think he's underrated? I do think he's underrated. Um, his presidency tends to get short shrift, partly because of who he's sandwiched between. When you're between Washington and Jefferson, it's sort of easy to get lost in the fray. <laughs> But also because he did have such a long, distinguished career, it's hard to sometimes choose from his moments. But he knew that whoever came after Washington was going to have a terrible time. Anyone was going to fall short after Washington. And yet he did it anyway. And he really took a number of decisive steps to protect executive authority from threats from his cabinet, to ensure peace for the nation with France. And then, of course, to ensure the peaceful transfer of power. He lost the election and he went home. And that is something that we have mm. come to expect from our president. But again, that was also a revolutionary act. Uh, talking with Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, her book, uh, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay, I know it's late uh, and I'll let you go to bed in a, in a minute. Let me just ask you, though, for people that are going to be in the line at a mattress sale today for George Washington's birthday and they find themselves in the midst of a sudden conversation with a friend or even a stranger about George Washington and his presidency, give folks a little known fact about George Washington that does not involve his teeth or chopping down cherry trees? Oh, gosh. Um, Okay. He was a huge dog lover. He loved dogs and he had great names for them. His biggest and most favorite hound was named Vulcan after the god and his spaniel that he liked the best was named Sweet Lips, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Uh, And finally, I'll end with this. One of the things that whatever political party that is not in power tends to do is whenever the president, whoever the president is, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, whatever the president tries to do that they believe is a usurpation of congressional authority, usually involving some executive order or executive action, they say, oh, this is the president trying to become a monarch. It does seem that the 21st century president president is a much more powerful position than the 18th century president. Assuming you agree with that analysis, and you know I'm not a historian, I'm just somebody that's interested in this stuff, but assuming you agree with that, why did that happen and when did that happen? When did the imperial presidency become so imperial? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question, one I think that we as all Americans need to think about. So I do think that the 18th century, at least Washington and Adams, were more powerful than we think that they were because they were in office all the time, whereas Congress was often in recess and tended to be in recess when anything interesting happened, 
which gave the president a whole lot of authority to take action decisively. However, I think that the modern presidency that we think of with so much authority over so many aspects of our lives really started um, in the New Deal World War II era. And partly that was because there were these insane crises that had never been faced, a huge Great Depression and then World War II and new federal agencies to try and manage some of the resources that the government was providing to people. But there was also a sense that Congress was increasingly ineffective and a president was effective. A a president could take quick action. A president could make decisions. It's easier for one person to call the shots. And Congress has actually ceded a lot of that authority. They like to, you know, quibble with it when it suits them, but they tend not to participate in the legislative process. They tend not to get things done, and they tend not to exercise a whole lot of actual constructive Mm -hmm. oversight. And in doing so, they've really ceded a lot of that authority to the president. So it's really, I think, a two-way process that we would have to encourage both sides to participate in in order to restore some semblance of balance that was expected. Dr. Lindsay Shravinsky, I really appreciate the conversation. I hope people both check out your George Washington book, The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. And then uh, come September, I hope they check out Making the Presidency, John Adams and the Precedents that Forged the Republic. I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. And hopefully, as I said, we can chat again in the fall. That would be great. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy Washington's birthday observed. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.